Welcome to the Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on the Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? The idea of work having a social impact. As some of you may know, I started my career as a grassroots community organizer bazillion years ago in the 1980s, working in the Bed-Stuy community of Brooklyn, New York, which back then was a rough and tumble kind of place. And so this idea of having work, have a connection to the larger world, having work be meaningful, having work have an impact on society, That is something that is near and dear to my heart and brings me right in to our guest for today. Our guest is Kobe Williams, and he works in the field of public affairs. And we may talk a little bit about what that means. And he has been doing community engagement work for decades. Like since he was a tween, he has been doing community engagement work. And all of this work that he does, helping to connect the community with what's going on in the public sphere. So usually that's about what cities are doing or municipalities or governments. Sometimes it's also businesses. So helping to connect them with the community, all of that has really been through the lens of what's now called diversity, equity, and inclusion, or (laughs) generally called diversity, equity, and inclusion. I heard a term the other day, which I just love, which is JEDI, which is justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So there's all kinds of frames for this work around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's something that Kobe and I really share a passion for. And that's actually part of how he and I have gotten connected is through the work that he and I are both up to around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So welcome, Kobe. Thank you, Janine. Such a pleasant and warm introduction. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Uh, You're totally welcome. It's my pleasure and honor. So let's start the way that I often start, which is what is something that you have become aware of that people are not paying attention to? And what's been the cost of that not paying attention? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) You know, quite honestly, a lot of events that have 
you know, transpired the past 18 plus months now, we're yep. inching up on two years, have they were kind of surreal for me. They've mm-hmm. been top of mind for a while. So did I see COVID coming? No, most, <laughs> most people didn't. And did I see what I call at least the United States most recent racial awakening? Did I see that coming? No, but things that both of those have in common, I think it really helped to demonstrate, highlight, illustrate just how fragmented a lot of communities are, particularly the have and the have nots, how different social issues disproportionately affect different populations or groups of people due to no fault of their own. And it's kind of how, you know, so there's the recent awakening or awareness or growing appreciation that those issues exist, but that's kind of still, that's like first base. And myself and many of my peers, colleagues and friends, we're already on third base, waving people home, so to speak. So I think just kind of the awareness gaps And why that matters is because, okay, awareness is step one, right? There's the work. So what does the work look like is something that's really top of mind for me that's just been elevated just within the past upwards of almost two years now. Uh, I love the whole range of things that you just pointed to in that. You know, so I just gave a talk the other day. And one of the things that I was talking about is that if you are white and more or less what's generally considered middle class in America, it might have been easy before May 25th, 2020 Mm -hmm. to think uh, we've got this race thing handled. Like we elected, we elected a black man president. Twice even. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh my God, we've got it. It's all fine. And then with the horrendous murder, that happened on May 25th, suddenly the conversation changed. It was what Malcolm Gladwell calls a tipping point. Yes. Suddenly the conversation moved from, oh, that's just one bad racist cop to we have a systemic problem that many people had the privilege of not being aware of. And suddenly was like, oh, oh my goodness, this, wait, this has been happening all the time. And so I think part of what's been so hard for so many people about this last 18 months or two years is that we've had two major things happening at the same time. Yes, We've had this international pandemic that it keeps feeling like, well, maybe we're approaching the end of it. And then, oops, no. And so, you know, just this massive uncertainty. And what are things going to look like on the other side of this in all kinds of different arenas? And we've had that happening at the same time that we've had this awakening after the horrendous murder of George Floyd and the, like the level of rethinking that has needed to happen and the level of awareness that's suddenly been called forth in people is mind-boggling in many ways. And at the same time, we have whole groups of people for whom, while the murder of George Floyd was horrendous, it actually wasn't 
really that much of anything new. Exactly. And so you have this whole group of people yeah. who are like, ah, these other people who are like, yeah, it's Tuesday in America. Like, and so I think that awareness that you're talking about that so many people have had the privilege of not being aware of and are suddenly waking up to is just step one. And then the question is first base, as you said. And then the question is, how do we move from awareness to second base and then to third base and then all the way home where you're working on bringing us? So what are the things that you get to do with the organizations that you work with to help move them through a process from awareness about what's been happening in the community. And, you know, these are not only the communities that you serve, these are the communities that you're from. So this is personal to you. How do you help move people from awareness to other levels of action and participation? Great questions. And it's just interesting. The George Floyds of of the world, of the country. Yeah, that's unfortunately nothing new. Emmett Till was murdered, I believe, in 1954. His, the marker for his, I believe, his, his grave site, or at least where the body was found, is encased in bulletproof glass because it's target practice and it's continuously replaced. So that's not a new thing. So, yeah, a lot of these issues, unfortunately, aren't anything new. I spent some time in Louisville couple of weekends ago, actually, and went to a, I'm a bourbon boy. I love bourbon, but uh, <laughs> it was a good time yeah. and visited an exhibit at a museum that commemorated the, the life and the movement behind uh, Taylor. Mm-hmm. It, it was moving. It was just talking about it now. And I am, and have been close to it. I have some associations, involvement, supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you said that out loud, pre-20, you were pretty much a terrorist. And just to see how, like, wow, even LinkedIn changed their logo, had the Pan-African colors on there. So those to me are what are surreal. You know what I mean? Yeah, on third base, that's cool and cute. But, you know, to bring home and answer your question, yeah, there's DE&I and Jedi, and to me, kind of QC terms. I understand, you know, there's benefit or value to categorizing it. But to me, those are verbs, but unfortunately, they usually get spoken about as adjectives. Verb means action. It's action-oriented. It's momentum. It's doing something with it. And I think in many ways, intentional and not, but definitely, certainly, there's some intentionality behind just keeping those as just adjectives. There's just things that are that are there. You know, when it comes to that work, so there's cancer, right? You say Beat cancer, there's shirts that just say fuck cancer or it's bleeped out. <laughs> right, right. And if you were to wear that in Starbucks, the grocery store, nobody would bat an eye about that. Or in homelessness or those no one bats an eye, but the real target of DEI always gets danced around and, and doesn't get addressed. The origins of it are, you know, white supremacy and white privilege. Those statements alone are controversial, even though that's the origins of, of our country. Like that's quite literally black and white. So I think, you know, first is just acknowledging a lot of, at least my thinking on what I just said is that work is action oriented. It's not just something that you just use to describe people, be used to describe work and outcomes. And my work, yes, I'm from marginalized, challenged communities. And that's also where a bulk of my work, where I do directly and or 
they are the the beneficiaries of the work that I do. I specifically work on social impact, which for me are things that help to change, improve, sometimes even save people's lives. And unfortunately, marginalized communities, those particularly of color, are the ones who are catching the most hell. And that's what we saw with COVID. COVID was kind of the great equalizer, but many people got the worst of that and with other issues. What my work looks like is I help organizations connect their causes to communities. What that looks like is stakeholder outreach, community engagement, strategic planning, implementation, issue advocacy, and uh, capacity building. So I do public affairs and some people call it community engagement, public participation. That's just how I choose to um, categorize it, kind of the most universal. I'm in the information and relationship business. And none of that happens overnight, but both require trust and integrity and patience. And so many, sometimes some clients or organizations might approach me and I primarily work with government philanthropic organizations and nonprofits. It's, Mm -hmm. hey, what happened to George Floyd was terrible. Hey, we're woke now, so to speak. (laughs) And we would love to engage with the black and brown communities and we want to be their best friends and vice versa. And can you make that happen in a month? You know, and it's like... And, you know, even if it's well intended, it's, yeah, you know, that's kind of what a Vegas or Reno wedding, right? (laughs) And, you know, it's important to acknowledge that these communities have experienced trauma or not just experience or experiencing trauma. And oftentimes these organizations that I work with, they quite literally, their institution directly or what they represent, if it's government or what have you, they were the perpetrators. And it's sometimes a tough conversation, but it's a necessary one to have to manage expectations that the real, to give validity to that effort and credibility to the work that I may be asked to do is managing those expectations that it's not going to happen overnight. It's possible. If it wasn't, I wouldn't be be doing this work. But yes, it's a mountain to climb and, you know, to be intentional and to own it. You know, you're representing, if not an organization, maybe you look like or you are someone whom is culpable for that. I don't say this lightly, but it's it's like if an abusive relationship. And yeah, come and you bring flowers or a favorite gift or what have you to that other person. Okay, cool. Uh, maybe I'll sniff your flowers or eat your candy. Maybe I won't. The fruit basket is nice, but that still does not absolve from the trauma that led up to the incident. So I know that that was a lot there, but that's my thinking around the work. And, you know, at least at a high level, the ways that I help to bridge some of those gaps and more specifically for outcomes and ultimately impact that really benefits those marginalized communities. There are so many things in there. And, you know, one was how much we all want change to happen fast. Yeah. I am a human who has struggled with my weight for most of my life. And like, if there were a magic diet pill out there, I would <laughs> take it. That yeah. would transform me overnight. And then I wouldn't have to worry about this anymore. And that's how we kind of want life to be like, okay, I'm having trouble with my kids or I'm having trouble in my marriage or I'm having trouble at my job or our organization wants to connect with this community and we want it to happen fast. Yeah. I was working with a client who has a challenging relationship with the community in which they are located. And there's some reasons for that, of course. And they really want a much more productive relationship with the community. And they have no idea 
how to go about creating it. And even when we talk about community, sometimes what they're talking about is people who live locally to where they are situated. Sometimes what they're talking about is elected officials. Mm -hmm. Like these are not the same things. You're talking about, you know, oranges and orangutans. (laughs) These these are very different entities that have very different experiences of you. And, and they were saying like, well, can this one thing that you're going to help us with, can this create trust? And I said, of course not. (laughs) Of course this can't create trust. Can it be part of what creates trust? Absolutely. But there is no magic wand, just like for most of us, we don't meet somebody and then marry them that day. We don't develop trust overnight, especially when there has been harm inflicted. And whether I inflicted the harm or not is immaterial. I am of the group of the people who historically inflicted the harm, whether that is a philanthropic organization, whether that's a municipality, whether that is white people, whether that is rich people, whether that is landowners, you know, whatever the group is. And so how does that go when you are talking with the people who would like to hire you Mm -hmm. to have you wave a magic wand and have them be the best friends of the community? And you say to them, so yes, I, you know, what you're doing is interesting and important you know, obviously, given who you are, Kobe, you're not going to work for organizations or municipalities that are doing dirt. So you're going to work for good organizations, good cities that are really up to doing the right thing and really want to authentically engage. But then you say to them, so here's the thing. No, it's not going to happen in a month. And here are some of the reasons why. And it may be things that you yourself did, or it may be things that your predecessors did, or as you said, it may just be people who look like you who did that thing or those things that have created this system that these other people have then been living into. So there's hurt feelings and there's bad experiences and there's trauma there. And so to get up over that, that doesn't happen overnight. How does that, how does that land with the folks that you're talking to and how do you help move them forward on their journey? Yeah, good question. And yeah, I don't work on every project and it's not of arrogance whatsoever. I'm really about doing the good work and for the communities who ultimately benefit from it, you know, by, yeah, good trouble. (laughs) Shout out to the late great. Yes. Because the organizations that I work with, they exist to service communities. So I view my role as helping them to do that. However, I describe myself I'm an activist who happens to be a consultant. Fairly unique background that I share the grassroots community organizing background. Also had involvement with legislative offices as well as a consultant. So I kind of, the full picture, but yeah, at the end of the day, I wear that quite literally on my sleeve and on my shirt that yes, I am an activist. To me that the work of engagement, public affairs, public participation, whatever you may call it, I believe that 90% of it is about the invitation. Now, there's a lot that goes into that and to be intentional with that, but that's a starting point. And, you know, if an organization, you know, a lot of times community really means the people they like and the people, you know, you're not going to catch hell from the people you're comfortable with. And I describe that 
that's called a birthday party, right? Where you can invite people, you know, they show up and they love you. And, you know, there's not much challenge in that, right? You're not going to get catch hell for that. No. Community is different. And yes, it's about the invitation. But to quote uh, another great, fabulous community builder, uh, shout out to Cincinnati, my my hometown, Peter Block, internationally known community builder uh, based out of Cincinnati. And, you know, says that if someone can't say no, their yes means nothing. And uh, one of my favorite quotes is that, so yes, you might invite a community to participate in a process, a conversation, an outcome, what, what have you. And if they say no, a lot of times they get written off. And maybe the ask was half-hearted to begin with. It's, it's really a conversation. Conversations are continual. And back to the invitation analogy, you still want to give them the, the right of refusal, so to speak. Yep. And maybe they will. You know, maybe there we have friends or family members that we don't really like all that much. Well, maybe they're not a friend. And they have that wedding, that birthday party, or what have you. And you aren't going to go anyway because you don't really like them. Right. <laughs> but damn it, give me that right of refusal. You right. know, I want the invitation. Yes, I still I want the invitation. Okay. You know, at least acknowledge me. Maybe you don't even know how I feel about you. Halfway joke with that, but I, I do think that is the mentality that is respectful. Many of these communities or individuals in them already have undue expectations of being subservient. Okay. So, and I'm using the term invitation broadly, they're not really invitations, their expectations, their mandates, and maybe you didn't even go about it the right way. All of that is important and very thorough process to help clients think through who and the why and the what. Oftentimes in public affairs work, you just want to get to the when and where. And, you know, it's important, you know, yeah, fast. This is happening Tuesday. Yeah, that's three days away. And these people don't show up where they clearly don't care. You know, those conversations are out there. So it's really being thoughtful, intentional about, you know, the who, the why and the what and the tone, the spirit of whatever the effort project, the ask is, is not a, a mandate. It is a communities have already experienced that. Right. And oftentimes they were sanctioned by the very entities who kind of might now expect kind of that shotgun wedding experience. So I'm a big believer in it's all about the invitation. Invitation is not a mandate. And to be thoughtful about the who and the whys and the what's that are involved with engagement projects that I'm involved with and take clients through a, a thorough process to really think that through, to do the heavy lifting on the front end. So, and it's still not overnight, but the rest of the process is going more smoother. And, you know, one other final thing on, on that point that I'll mention is I'm a consultant, right? So I'm not going to be in the picture forever. I don't like to set clients up in a game of what I call Jenga or racial Jenga, where as soon as, you know, new reaches out of the picture, you kind of knock that piece out. The whole thing collapses. Uh-huh. That doesn't do anyone any, any good. Any good, right. So I really try to set organizations up for success with that process so that it's not reliant. I already know them oftentimes, not always, but that's not breaking any new ground or have credibility with the audiences you're trying to reach. How can I help you do that? Not overnight, but so that it is really more a relational process. So one of the things that I thought of when you were talking about that is my parents. So my dad, many, many years ago, my folks have been married for more than 60 years. So my dad, when he first saw my mom, invited her to go 
don't remember what it was, like roller skating or ice skating or something like that. It was in the winter in North Carolina. And she said, no. Mm. And then he asked her to go bike riding. And she said, no. And I think he asked three times before asking her to go to the movies. And she said yes to the movies. What he didn't know about my mom is my mom can walk right up there with the best of them. But other than that, like activities are not something that she's interested in. She was an all-star student and then went on to be a college instructor. And I think the only D or maybe even she failed was bowling. <laughs> like my mother is just not super coordinated with that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's not her jam. And he kept asking her to do these active things because he didn't know her yet. Mm-hmm. And he kept getting a no. And then he found something where she could sit <laughs> and that they could enjoy together. And it has gone on to be a wonderful, happy marriage for low these 60 plus years. And how often we do that in the world, we ask people to things without knowing them, without understanding their motivation, without really making that connection to the why and the you know, all the preliminary questions that you were asking that were so brilliant and I can't even remember them all. So I love that, that you're really starting with who is this community? Why would it make sense for them? Like, forget about why we want to be engaged with them. Why would it make sense for them to be engaged with us? And one of the things that you and I have talked about in the realm of um, diversity work is that For organizations that really want to take it on and not just check a box, that really want to do the work Mm -hmm. around it, that figuring out how does this connect to our organizational mission, vision, and values can be transformative in then really being able and willing to spend the time, to spend the resources. I was talking the other day with a group of chief diversity officers a job that didn't used to exist. And this is a group of people who are having enormous job turnover. They are the least tenured in the C-suite by about half because they're so excited. Great, I get to work on diversity and I'm going to help transform this organization. And then they don't get the resources that they need and or the access that they need. They don't have the power that they need in order to transform things within an organization because the organization hasn't done that pre-work to actually figure out why do we care about this anyway? Because if you've done that pre-work and really this is core to who you are, then you're going to allocate the resources to actually make it work. And just like with trust, just like with community engagement, it's not going to be an overnight process. It's going to be a long effort. So if you had a microphone and you could say something to everybody in the world or everybody in the US or every kind of organization that is working to engage with communities or you know whoever you would love to reach, what is something that you would love for people to 
finally get and pay attention to and put time and energy and resources to? That's such a big question. I'm sorry. Yes, that's <laughs> a big question. Yes. Because oh. of what you do, it's like it's it's a huge <laughs> life-changing, world-altering question. What's a little thing that you would do, Kobe? <laughs> yeah, wow. And I think specific to again what's called DE and I, and it's a verb, not an adjective. Yep. And to shift that paradigm as far as what does the work actually look like in action. And in the organizing world, an issue is a problem with a solution. So when I say, you know, issue, that's the thinking that I'm using behind it. It needs a culprit. And I think with that work, that's a tough conversation, right? As well, you're, you're overcoming something. And I think that it's the elephant in the room. If it's not addressed, then that really makes the work tougher. And that's where I think a lot of the focus of those conversations really, that's where you get movement is just acknowledging the elephant that's stomping in the room, knocking over the China cabinet, you know, in terms of community, that community is, I think of it in macro, meso and micro levels, but to acknowledge that there is trauma that exists in in certain communities. And oftentimes, if you're doing that type of work, it again, is to address an issue. Okay. Well, to acknowledge the hurt, the origins of that. And I think there's a lot of resentment about not acknowledging resentment. I don't think a lot of things are personal, you know, they don't know you personally or vice versa, but yes, there's resentment of a lack of resentment. So I really think it comes down to respect, intentionality, and patience with a lot of the weighty topics that we're talking about. Most of them didn't happen overnight, so the solution won't happen overnight. I think that even if there's best intentions, it can kind of be disrespectful to rush either of those along. And if you're really passionate about the work, you want to be in it for the long haul, long haul. You know, most people wouldn't buy a car that's only going to last for a month, let alone do this very important work and expect it to be meaningful, credible, and lasting if that same mentality is, the instantaneous mentality is expected with it. Transformation does not happen overnight. Absolutely. How, what ideas do you have around, it's so hard for humans to acknowledge the pain that they've caused somebody mm. else. Yeah. And it's even trickier if it wasn't you personally. Sure. In some ways, it's easier if it wasn't you personally, because you don't have the feelings of guilt. You're not wrestling with your conscience. You're not mm-hmm. trying to protect your ego. You know, you're not doing all the things that the humans do. And apologizing for things or owning things that you didn't create. A lot of people don't, I'm not sure if it's that they don't understand why it's important or they don't, honestly, I'm not sure what that is. But my question is really around what ideas do you have or what tricks have you developed or what methodologies do you employ to try and help people figure out how to come to terms with apologizing, owning harm, whether they created it or not? Yeah, fantastic question. You know, I think a lot of it starts with common ground, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, we had chatted about this a little bit before. If, if So we're basically in late November now. Okay, so it's, it's still November. And if there's not mutual agreement that it's November. Yep. We can't really talk about whether or not 
it's cold or this is or if it's your favorite month, you know, I'm thinking November, you're thinking it's July. We're not going to make much progress on that. So I think and it can take different shapes, you know, different forms, but it really comes down to some level of common ground. If you can't establish that, then I think it's really an effort and futility. And it doesn't have to be on everything. It it probably won't be on everything. I think a lot of folks kind of go in with that. Most relationships, professional, personal, what have you, you're not 100% on the same page with everything, but there's still some common ground that you kind of layer in advance uh, from that. So that's where I think it starts from and not so much of just, you know, on either side, there's quote unquote sides, just shoving it all in, so to speak. Um, (laughs) And especially if, if you're not of that marginalized group. Certainly, right. that would not be be appropriate. So, you know, I think that's it, it sounds oversimplistic, maybe. However, necessary and clearly isn't done enough, if at all, right. as a starting point. Most conflicts, battles, or wars start with some level of diplomacy. You know, you don't just send your nukes off. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Right? Yeah, hopefully not. Knock on wood. You know, that's not a good thing. <laughs> no nukes. You know, but there's some level of that. And it's not just, well, they didn't answer our email or letter or phone call. So we're just going to blow them the hell up. You know, that's where the respect comes in. Because again, if they couldn't say no, then their yes meant nothing. And you just won't gain much ground that way. This has been such a rich conversation. And I feel like there's 800 different tendrils (laughs) that are out there that we could continue to explore. But for the sake of time and for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. It's been a delightful conversation. I want to make sure that people know Kobe Williams is, do you call yourself the executive director? Are you the CEO? What are you? Yeah, myself and New Reach is uh, less less pretentious, at least for the type of work I do. I'm uh, owner and founder of uh, New Reach Community Consulting. Great. So that's where you can find him and the links to him will be in the show notes because I know there's going to be some people who want to reach out to you, Kobe. Yeah. One final thing, my advice is get in trouble, get in good trouble, get in necessary trouble. Shout out to the late, great John Lewis. And it's for the greater good. I am Janine Hamner-Holman. And this has been the cost of not paying attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been the cost of not paying attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, Great leaders make great teams. I'm beginning to think. I'm beginning to think. I might sit here and just breathe. I think I might need a political science degree. About my anxiety. So, all out of learning in store, reading and training, you're listening more. 
I'm beginning to think I'm beginning